Chapter Six of Captain's Courageous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Captain's Courageous by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter Six. The thing that struck him most was the exceedingly casual way in which some craft loafed about in the broad Atlantic. Fishing-boats, as Dan said, were naturally dependent on the courtesy and wisdom of their neighbours, but one expected better things of steamers. That was after another interesting interview, when they had been chased for three miles by a big lumbering old cattle-boat, all boarded over on the upper deck, that smelt like a thousand cattle-pens. A very excited officer yelled at them through a speaking-trumpet, and she lay and lolloped helplessly on the water while Disco ran the We're Here under her lee, and gave the skipper a piece of his mind. "'Where might you be, eh? You don't deserve to be anywheres. You barnyard tramps go hogging the road on the high seas with no blame consideration for your neighbours, and your eyes in your coffee-cups instead of your silly heads.' At this the skipper danced on the bridge, and said something about Disco's own eyes. "'We haven't had an observation for three days. Do you suppose we can run her blind?' he shouted. "'Well, I can,' Disco retorted. "'What's come to your lead? Edit? Can't you smell bottom? Or are them cattle too rank?' "'What do you feed em? asked Uncle Salters, with intense seriousness for the smell of the pens woke all the farmer in em. "'They say they fall off dreadful on a voyage. Dunno as is any of my business, but I've a kind of notion that oil-cake broke small and sprinkled—' "'Thunder!' said a cattleman in a red jersey, as he looked over the side. "'What asylum did they let his whiskers out of?' "'Young feller,' Salters began, standing up in the fore-rigging, "'let me tell you, for we go any further, that I've—' The officer on the bridge took off his cap with immense politeness. "'Excuse me,' he said, "'but I've asked for my reckoning. If the agricultural person with the hair will kindly shut his head, the sea-green barnacle with a wall-eye may perhaps condescend to enlighten us.' "'Now you've made a show of me, Salters,' said Disco angrily. He could not stand up to that particular sort of talk and snapped out the latitude and longitude without more lectures. "'Well, that's a boatload of lunatics, sure,' said the skipper, as he rang up the engine-room, and tossed a bundle of newspapers into the schooner. "'Of all the blamed fools next to you, Salters, him and his crowd are about the likeliest I've ever seen,' said Disco, as the weir here slid away. I was just giving him my judgment on Lulis sicking round these waters like a lost child, and you must cut in with your fool farming. Can't you never keep things separate?" Harvey, Dan, and the others stood back, winking one to the other and full of joy, but Disco and Salters wrangled seriously till evening, Salters arguing that a cattle-boat was practically a barn on blue water, and Disco insisting that, even if this were the case, Decency and fisher-pride demanded that he should have kept things separate. Long Jack stood in silence for a time. An angry skipper makes an unhappy crew. And then he spoke across the table after supper. "'For what's the good of bothering what they say?' said he. 
"'They'll tell that tale again us for years, that's all,' said Disco. "'Oil cake sprinkled!' "'With salt, of course,' said Salters, impenitent, reading the farming reports from a week-old New York paper. "'It's plumb mortifying to all my feelings,' the skipper went on. "'Can't see it that way,' said Long Jack, the peacemaker. "'Look at here, Disco. Is there another packet afloat this day in this weather could have met a tramp, and over above given her her reckoning? Over and above that, I say, could have discoursed with her quite intelligent on the management of steers and such at sea? Forget it. Of course they will not. "'Twas the most compendious conversation that I've ever accrued. Double game and twice running, all to us." Dan kicked Harvey under the table, and Harvey choked in his cup. "'Well,' said Salters, who felt that his honour had been somewhat plastered, "'I said I didn't know twas any business of mine, for I spoke.' "'And right there,' said Tom Platt, experienced in discipline and etiquette, "'right there.' I take it, Disco, you should have asked him to stop if the conversation was likely, in your judgment, to be anyways what it shouldn't. Dunno, but that's so, said Disco, who saw his way to an honourable retreat from a fit of the dignities. Why, of course it was so, said Salters. You being skipper here, and I'd cheerful have stopped on a hint, not from any leadin' or conviction, but for the sake of bearing an example to these two blame boys of ours. Didn't I tell you, Harv, twould come around to us fore we'd done? Always those blame boys. But I wouldn't have missed the show for a half-share and a halibutter, Dan whispered. Still things should have been kept separate, said Disco, and the light of new argument lit in Salter's eye as he crumbled cut plug into his pipe. "'There's a power of virtue in keeping things separate,' said Long Jack, intent on stilling the storm. "'That's what Staining, of Staining and Hares, fund when he sent Cunahan for skipper on the Manila Ticoon, instead of Captain Newton that was took with inflammatory rheumatism and couldn't go. Cunahan the Navigator, we called him.' "'Nick Cunahan, he never went aboard for a night without a pond of rum somewheres in the manifest.' said Tom Platt, playing up to the lead. He used to burn round the commission-houses to Boston, looking for the Lord to make him captain of a tow-boat on his merits. Sam Coy, up to Atlantic Avenue, gave him his board free for a year or more, on account of his stories. Cunahan the Navigator! Dead these fifteen year, ain't he? Seventeen, I guess. He died the year the Casper McVeigh was spilt, but he could never keep things separate. Staining took em for the reason the thief took the hot stove, because there was nothing else that season. The men was all to the banks, and Cunahan he whacked up an everlastin' hard crowd for crew. Rum! You could have floated the Manila, insurance and all, in what they stowed aboard her. They left Boston Harbor for the great grand bank with a roarin' northwester behind em, and all hands full to the bung. And the heavens looked after em, for divil a watch did they set, and divil a rope did they lay hand to, till they'd seen the bottom of a fifteen-gallon cask of bug-juice. That was about one week, so far as Gunahan remembered, if I could only tell the tale as he told it. All that while the wind blew like old glory, and the Manila, it was summer, and they give her a foretop-mast, struck her gate and kept it. Then Gunahan took the hog-yoke, 
and thrembled over it for a while, and made out, betwixt that and the chart, and the singing in his head, that they was to the south of the Sable Island, get along glorious, but speaking nothing. Then they broached another keg, and quit speculating about anything for another spell. The Manila she lay down when she dropped Boston Light, and she never luffed her lee-rail up to that time, hustling on one of the same slant. But they saw no weed, nor gulls, nor schooners, and presently they observed they'd been out on a matter of fourteen days, and they mistrusted the bank had suspended payment. So they sounded, and got sixty fathom. "'That's me,' says Cunahan. "'That's me every time. I've run her slat on the bank for you, and when we get thirty fathom we'll turn in like little men.' Cunahan is the boy, says he, Cunahan the navigator. Next cast they got ninety, says Cunahan. Either the lead lines took to stretchin' or else the bank sunk. They hauled it up, being just about in that state when it seemed right and reasonable, and sat down on the deck countin' the knots, and gettin' her snarled up hejus. The Manila she'd struck her gate, and she held it, and presently along come a tramp, and Cunahan spoke her. "'Have you seen any fishing-boats now?' says he, quite casual. "'There's lashings of em off the Irish coast,' says the tramp. "'Ah! Go shake yourself,' says Cunahan. "'For what have I to do with the Irish coast?' "'For what are you doing here?' says the tramp. "'Suffering Christianity,' says Cunahan. He always said that when his pump sucked and he was not feeling good. "'Suffering Christianity,' he says. "'Where am I at?' Thirty-five mile west south of Cape Clear, says the tramp, if that's any consolation to you. Conahan fetched one jump, four feet seven inches measured by the cook. Consolation, says he, bold as brass, do you take me for a dialect? Thirty-five mile from Cape Clear, and fourteen days from Boston Light. Suffering Christianity, tis our record, and by the same token I have a mother to Skibbereen. Think of it, the gall of em. But you see, you can never keep things separate. The crew was mostly cork and carry men, barring one Marylander that wanted to go back, but they called him a mutineer, and they ran the old Manila into Skibbereen, and they had an elegant time visited round with friends on the old sod for a week. Then they went it, and it cost them two and thirty days to beat to the banks again. Twas getting on towards fall, and grub was low, so Cunahan run her back to Boston with no more bones to it. "'And what did the firm say?' Harvey demanded. "'For what could they? The fish was on the banks, and Cunahan was at T-Wharf talking and his record-trip east. They took their satisfaction out of that, and it all came of not keeping the crew and the rum separate in the first place, and confusing Skibbereen with Quiru in the second. Cunahan the navigator, rest his soul, he was an impromptu citizen. "'Once I was in the Lucy Holmes.' said Manuel, in his gentle voice. "'They not want any of our fish in Gloucester. Eh, what? Give us no price, so we go across the water, and think to sell to some fail man. Then it blow fresh, and we cannot see well. Eh, what? Then it blow some more fresh, and we go down below and drive very fast. No one know where. By and by we see a land, and it gets some hot.' Then come two, three nigger in a brick. Eh, what? We ask where we are, and they say, <laughs> Now what you all think? Grand Canary, 
said Disco, after a moment. Manuel shook his head, smiling. "'Blanco,' said Tom Platt. "'No, worse than that. We was below Bizagos, and the brick she was from Liberia. So we sell our fish there. Not bad, so? Eh, what?' "'Can a schooner like this go right across to Africa?' said Harvey. "'Go round the horn, if there was anything worth going for, and the grub holds out,' said Disco. "'My father, he run his packet, and she was a kind of pinky, about fifty ton, I guess, the Rupert. He run her over to Greenland's icy mountains the year half our fleet was trying after cod there. And what's more, he took my mother along with him, to show her how the money was earned, I presume. And they was all iced up, and I was born at Disco.' don't remember nothing about it, of course. We come back when the ice eased in the spring, but they named me for the place. Kind of mean trick to put up on a baby, but we're all bound to make mistakes in our lives." "'Sure, sure,' said Salters, wagging his head. "'All bound to make mistakes, and I tell you two boys here that you've made a mistake. You don't make fewer than a hundred a day. The next best thing's to own up to it like men.' Long Jack winked one tremendous wink that embraced all hands except Disco and Salters, and the incident was closed. Then they made berth after berth to the northward, the dories out almost every day, running along the east edge of the Grand Bank in thirty to forty fathom water, and fishing steadily. It was here Harvey first met the squid, who was one of the best cod-baits, but uncertain in his moods. They were waked out of their bunks one black night by yells of, Squiddo from Salters, and for an hour and a half every soul aboard hung over his squid-jig, a piece of lead painted red, and armed at the lower end with a circle of pins bent backward like half-opened umbrella ribs. The squid, for some unknown reason, likes and wraps himself around this thing, and is hauled up ere he can escape from the pins but as he leaves his home he squirts first water and next ink into his captor's face, and it was curious to see the men weaving their heads from side to side to dodge the shot. They were as black as sweeps when the flurry ended, but a pile of fresh squid lay on the deck, and the large cod thinks very well of a little shiny piece of squid tentacle at the tip of a clam-baited hook. Next day they caught many fish, and met the Carrie Pitman, to whom they shouted their luck, and she wanted to trade. Seven cod for one fair-sized squid. But Disco would not agree at the price, and the carry dropped sullenly to leeward, and anchored half a mile away, in the hope of striking on to some for herself. Disco said nothing till after supper, when he sent Dan and Manuel off to buoy the Weirhears cable, and announced his intention of turning in with the broad-axe. Dan naturally repeated these remarks to a dory from the carry, who wanted to know why they were buoying their cable, since they were not on rocky bottom. "'Dad says he wouldn't trust a ferry-boat within five mile of you,' Dan howled cheerfully. "'Well, why don't he get out, then? Who's hindering?' says the other. "'Cause you just the same as Lee bowed him, and he don't take that from any boat, not to speak of such a drifting gurry-butt as you be.' "'She ain't drifting any this trip said the man angrily, for the Carrie Pitman had an unsavoury reputation for breaking her ground-tackle. 
"'Then how do you make berths?' said Dan. "'It's her best point of sailing, and if she's quit drifting, what in thunder are you doing with a new jib-boom?' That shot went home. "'Hey, you Portuguese organ grinder, take your monkey back to Gloucester. Go back to school, Dan Troop,' was the answer. "'Overalls! Overalls!' yelled Dan, who knew that one of the Carey's crew had worked in an overall factory the winter before. "'Shrimp! Gloucester shrimp! Get out, you Novi!' To call a Gloucester man a Nova Scotian is not well received. Dan answered in kind. "'Novi yourself, you scrabble-towners! You Chatham-wreckers! Get out with your brick in your stocking!' And the forces separated, but Chatham had the worst of it. "'I knew how it would be,' said Disco. "'She's drawed the wind round already. Someone ought to put a desist on that packet. She'll snore till midnight, and just when we're getting our sleep she'll strike adrift. Good job we ain't crowded with craft here a ways. But I ain't going to up anchor for Chatham. She may hold.' The wind, which had hauled round, rose at sundown and blew steadily. There was not enough sea, though, to disturb even a dory's tackle, but the Carrie Pittman was a law unto herself. At the end of the boys' watch they heard the crack, crack, crack of a huge muzzle-loading revolver aboard her. "'Glory, glory, hallelujah!' sung Dan. "'Here she comes, Dad, butt in first, walking in her sleep, same as she done on Quiro. Had she been any other boat, Disco would have taken his chances, but now he cut the cable as the Carrie Pittman, with all the North Atlantic to play in, lurched down directly upon them. The weir here, under jib and riding-sail, gave her no more room than was absolutely necessary. Disco did not wish to spend a week hunting for his cable, but scuttled up into the wind as the Carrie passed with an easy hail, a silent and angry boat at the mercy of a raking broadside of bank chaff. "'Good evening,' said Disco, raising his headgear. "'And how does your garden grow?' "'Go to Ohio and hire a mule,' said Uncle Salters. "'We don't want no farmers here.' "'Will I lend you my dory anchor?' cried Long Jack. "'Unship your rudder and stick it in the mud,' said Tom Platt. "'Say!' Dan's voice rose shrill and high, as he stood on the wheel-box. "'Say! Is there a strike in the overall factory, or have they hired girls, you shackamaxons?' "'Veer out the tiller-lines,' cried Harvey, "'and nail em to the bottom.' That was a salt-flavoured jest he had just been put up to by Tom Platt. Manuel leaned over the stern and yelled, "'John and Morgan play the organ! Ha, ha, ha!' He flourished his broad thumb with a gesture of unspeakable contempt and derision, while little Penn covered himself with glory by piping up, "'Gee, a little! Hish! Come here! Haw!' They rode on their chain for the rest of the night, a short, snappy, uneasy motion, as Harvey found, and wasted half the forenoon recovering the cable. But the boys agreed the trouble was cheap at the price of triumph and glory, and they thought with grief over all the beautiful things that they might have said to the discomfited Carrie. End of chapter.